We are ex-Overland, and over the past 10 years, my wife and I have established a business doing what we love. Throughout the last 10 years, we have built over 20 Overland vehicles that have taken us and our team around the world as we film our adventures. My name is Clay Croft, and I am the founder and CEO of ex-Overland. On this podcast, we take a deep dive beyond what the camera can capture to offer you as much insight into the world of Overland travel as possible. If you haven't heard the news, Overlander Network just got even better. Overlander Network is the place to find all of X Overland's legacy and most current premium content, along with our popular masterclass series teaching you how to build your Overland vehicle from stock. With Overlander Network, you can now watch on your favorite devices through the new Overlander Network app. You can download all your favorite content to take with you on the trail and enjoy ad-free, family-friendly entertainment. You can watch video versions of this podcast, enjoy monthly live streams, and of course, be the first to watch the Nordic series before anyone else. Right now, you can test drive Overlander Network for free for three full days. Take the wheel at overlandernetwork.com. Welcome everybody to the X-Overland podcast. We're back and today we are beginning to take a look at wilderness medicine for Overlanders. And to that point, and uh, topic, we have brought on a special guest that is familiar to Expedition Overland. Some of the fans listening who are followers of Expedition Overland might know him, and that is Dr. John Solberg. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. John. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Dr. John is, he was our team doctor, team medic for season four Alaska, the return to Alaska, um, in which, John, if I understand correctly, you hosted a wilderness first aid course for some of the members of the team during that expedition, correct? We did, yeah. It it wasn't really official, like there was no badge at the end of it, but uh, it was just a great opportunity to introduce some of the topics uh, of wilderness medicine to these younger guys who are really kind of, uh, you know, growing up and becoming adults and ready to venture off on their own. And I think we we whetted their appetite enough that they will probably go on and take some kind of an official course. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I bet, I bet you inspired some viewers to do the same. And we're going to get into that topic about what's available out there. And uh, just taking a further look at your bio, since this is the first time um, you're on our podcast and we want listeners and fans to know everything about your background that uh, we can squeeze in here. So they know why we have you on. And as far as uh, working with Clay Croft and Expedition Overland, uh, you guys were also on a major, huge adventure um, called the uh, the Greenland Expedition, right? The Expedition 7, the crossing of the Greenland ice cap? Uh, correct. Yeah, Clay and I were both with uh, Expedition 7 when they did their longitudinal crossing of Greenland uh, a couple of years ago now. And that was really when we got a chance to know each other quite well. Yeah, I think Kurt Williams was on that. Scott Brady, uh, founder, CEO of Overland Journal. Um, Greg Miller. Yeah, that that looks like an incredible adventure and one in which being the team doctor would would carry a lot of weight in those extreme conditions. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, being the team doctor, uh, it sounds great. There's a lot of unglamorous work that goes along with that. You know, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, fueling and shoveling and logistics. And, uh, you know, most of the doctoring on that trip kind of happened in the pre, pre-planning pre phase when we were getting ready, making sure our kit was stocked and everybody was appropriately trained. And uh, there weren't many medical mishaps that happened largely to the accolades of the expedition leader who was really, uh, you know, well-prepared and made sure that we all... Uh, you know, we're careful and watched each other's back. And so thankfully, uh, nothing terrible happened yeah, on that. that was Greg Miller was the expedition leader on that? Yeah. Okay. Just a, just a phenomenal, phenomenal leader and just a really great person. Um, and uh, Scott Brady was on that expedition as well. And looking over your bio, I saw where you are the medical editor, c- currently serving as the medical editor for Overland Journal. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, Scott is the one who I had known uh, the longest for you know, at that point, maybe eight years or so, and uh, uh, made the introduction for us and put, put it together so that uh, we made sure the team had a medical person along and uh, put me in touch with Greg 
to make it happen. Then I'm thinking Clayways brought on to do the filming, if I understand that correctly. Yep, that's correct. We weren't quite sure he was going to make it. He missed a flight uh, leaving the U.S. and seemed like he was one step behind us the entire way. But we did we did meet up at the southern end of Greenland uh, right before the trucks left. <laughs> I've just seen little glimpses of the footage for that. You know, hopefully someday the whole piece will be released. But it's extraordinary what you guys did. It, it really is a story that should be shared. There there aren't really many opportunities or places left to go and. Uh, do something of that magnitude for the first time. And uh, it's so inspiring. And the best part of the whole thing was how these individuals who many of us had never, did not really know each other going into the trip, how we could travel through uh, such adverse conditions and overcome so many obstacles. And at the same time, there wasn't a crossword spoken between any of the team members for the entire duration of the trip. And uh, I think that we need more of that in our world understanding and helping each other. And it all kind of played out uh, on the crossing of Greenland. Well, I, I really give huge props to X Overland for, for having that philosophy uh, as part of how they do things. And even to the degree that uh, I've heard that in their past, they, they were offered you know, some very lucrative contracts to spice up the drama and put their show on Discovery or something like that. And they refused because you know they, they want the show to be a model for what effective teamwork looks like. So, um, you know, everything you're speaking to in that extreme situation in Greenland, just, you know, it just validates uh, and speaks to everything that they stand for. Yeah, I concur. I've, I've been there and seen that and it all unfolds. Uh, you know, there's no script. <laughs> well, I want to look a little more at your bio. Um, John, it's, it's really remarkable. I was reading over that this morning and you are U.S. military trained originally uh, as as a medic. Is that correct? Uh, not as a medic. Uh, after medical school, I went into the military. And so I did a three-year emergency medicine residency uh, while I was on active duty. And that was at Fort Lewis in Washington at Madigan Army Medical Center. Okay. And that led you at some point, looks like, to the Helmand province in Afghanistan doing some combat support work? Yep. I spent uh, six months in southern Afghanistan at a small combat support hospital. It was a tent tent structure. We were there to support the 3rd Regimental Combat Team of the Marines, uh, very close to the Pakistani border. And uh, just, again, just working with phenomenal people. Uh, props to the Marines. Every single one of those guys was uh, spot on. You know, speaking of Marines, we just, uh, in our previous episode, that released um, this past week on Wednesday, we had Ty Heaps, a former Expedition Overland team member, and and a Marine, uh, you know, as he put it, I tried to introduce him as former Marine. And he's like, no, no, there's no such thing. No such thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. It's a cool episode. And, um, I'm also like looking at the unique medical exploits in your past. One was, uh, you mentioned sub-Saharan Africa. What was that about? Um, I spent a couple of months in Cameroon, uh, right at the very end of, uh, medical school. I had an opportunity to go and we had a uh, university alumni who was there had been there for many years as a as a, you know serving in a volunteer capacity, and there was the opportunity to make a connection and join him in Cameroon. So uh, I spent two months there at two different hospitals and uh, just was absolutely humbled by how nice uh, the people were. They were so friendly. Uh, you know they did not have a lot to give, but their hearts were just so open and warming and. Uh, it was really my first international experience. Pretty nervous on the way there. I wasn't really sure what to expect. I grew up in the geographical center of North America and uh, had not really traveled very much. And so uh, my eyes kind of became open to the world and how other people live and how they get their medical care. And and uh, just all remember that experience for the rest of my life. And you know, many times my wife and I, as we discuss the future and what we're going to do with our little family as it grows. I mean, that has come up on our radar that maybe we need to, you know, have some kind of a, another experience like that for, for our kids and for us to contribute medically where we're needed. Yeah. That I, I think that kind of training would make so much sense for physicians just to see what medical care and healthcare and humanity looks like in a, in different parts of the planet with different levels of development. Um, and I know there's a program, Doctors Without Borders, is that correct, that 
you know, doctors do this kind of thing? Yep, there is. Uh, Medicine Sans France, I can't remember exactly how you say it, but I think it's a French uh, organization, and those uh, those deployments can be, uh, you know, can be quite demanding. You, you don't take your family along on something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so maybe in the future, as my kids get older and maybe leave the house, I think my wife and I would, you know, maybe have an experience like that. But right now, we're really just kind of focused on making sure that we are providing opportunities for our kids to grow and experience the world. And so MSF doesn't fit in with us right now, but it might in the future. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, what you have in mind speaks to overlanding, in my opinion. And and um, I'm excited to to take a look at, the, at that and how, you know, everything we're talking about translates over into preparing overlanders. Um, just a couple more things from your impressive bio. Um, I'm noticing that you're a fellow in with two different organizations, American College of Emergency Physicians and the Ameri- the Academy of Wilderness Medicine. Can you tell uh, tell us a little more about that? Yeah, uh, they're both organizations that are uh, you know set up to provide education and recognition for individuals who are working in or studying in a various field. And uh, you know there are some requirements that you have to meet before you get it. And there's ongoing training that you have to get to keep that certification uh, current. So, and, you know, uh, American College of Emergency Physicians is is just for emergency physicians. The Academy of Wilderness Medicine is really, uh, is a great way for anybody in healthcare to become involved in wilderness medicine. Uh, you don't have to be a physician. Uh, you could be somebody and, you know, maybe you could be a paramedic or you could be a nurse or uh, you could be somebody who has a real interest in uh, epidemiology and you want to contribute in the field of wilderness medicine and the the roster is really open to anybody uh, which makes the conferences quite interesting because you get a real eclectic group of individuals there you can learn a lot i bet i bet yeah that sounds really fascinating just having so many different types of people all interested in learning wilderness medicine at that level i i've been uh, in researching this podcast i've been discovering that organization, among several others, that has just opened my eyes to how much training is available out there. Um, noticing you are a PADI certified rescue scuba diver and uh, a pilot, which, uh, sorry you couldn't fly out here. I know you wanted to, maybe in the future. We'll, we'll make it happen another time. <laughs> and you're an Alpine patroller with the National Ski Patrol, uh, Black Belt, and Taekwondo. And currently, you are working at a level two trauma center serving the University of North Dakota School of Medicine. Yep, that's correct. We, the university doesn't have a hospital, but uh, I have a, an appointment to a hospital here in North Dakota where I work in the ER. And then also, uh, you know, we have a medical school here in the state. So we try to arrange for and provide mentorship and educational opportunities for medical students who are going to enter the field of emergency medicine. Awesome, man. Well, like, like I said, when you first got on the podcast, your your bio is incredibly impressive. And that's why we are grateful to have you on here talking about wilderness medicine for overlanders. So let's jump into that topic, shall we? Sounds great. Awesome. Um, well, I guess to begin with, John, let's talk about what wilderness medicine is per se compared to, say, front country medicine or just going and getting certified in basic first aid. Yeah, a certification in in uh, first aid is wonderful, and I would never discourage anybody from getting any kind of training like that. The thing that makes wilderness medicine unique is, uh, you know, you're you're practicing medicine or you're taking care of somebody who's ill or injured, and you're doing it outside the confines of the hospital or the healthcare system. And so, you may be dealing with environmental factors, or you know, prolonged transport time, or limited supplies, and you know, even as an ER doctor, you know, I, I go into work, I know what tools are available, I have some consultants I can call, I have a CT scanner and a pharmacy, and all those tools are available. But when you're outside the walls of the hospital, uh, you don't have that kind of stuff. And so that could be, you know, it could be on a camping trip, or it could be, you know, on an airplane at 35,000 feet when you're traveling as a passenger where there's a medical emergency, and you kind of have to think out of the box with how you're going to uh, take care of that individual or yourself. Yeah, that makes sense because uh, there's a it's just a vast 
difference in the setting. Um, I, I just a little background, so you you know where I'm coming from, and mm-hmm. and maybe listeners. Um, when I was working as a, an outfitter and fishing and hunting, I went. I became a woofer, uh, so wilderness first responder training, and uh, did two like uh, did a full course in person course, um, and then recertified, and then did another full in person course. And now it's been, I would say, over a decade since I've had any of those trainings or certifications. But I remember, you know, a lot of things from that. And and this podcast is definitely spooling that all of that back up for me and getting me inspired to go get some more training and recertify. Um, and that was one of the big takeaways that I remember was that difference between in the setting between, say, basic first aid or even emergency medical technicians compared to wilderness emer- emergency medical technicians. Yeah. Dealing with that. We, absolutely. I mean, we, we work hand in hand every day in the ER with uh, EMTs and paramedics and uh, other healthcare professionals. And uh, all of those skills are useful and necessary. But I think what separates it is, you know, when you are going through the curriculum to become an EMT or a paramedic or even an emergency medicine physician, uh, you know, you are approaching a problem with, this is what we're going to do on our way to the hospital. Uh, EMTs and paramedics and folks working out in the community are not making decisions about, you know, do we transport or do we not? Or how do we provide definitive care here on the scene? Uh, And a wilderness medicine course, or as a professional, when you add on a wilderness certification after the fact, you're getting some extra training in... uh, you know, the scene, scene size up and making sure that you don't become an injury or a statistic yourself. You're, you know, brainstorming about what resources are available to you out in the field. So maybe you can make a decision there and continue on with your, with your trip. Uh, or if there's a, you know, somebody that needs to go to definitive medical care, there may not be anybody coming to rescue you. Uh, other places around the world, Europe has a really robust uh, helicopter rescue service in the mountains. It's not quite as organized here in the U.S. I mean, if you've seen one search and rescue group, you know, you've seen one. They are all different. They all function differently. They're organized under different hierarchies, depending on whether it's, uh, you know, you're in a National Park Service or you on BLM land or you, uh, uh, you know, at a ski resort. Uh, It's not uh, under one umbrella. And so you need to think about these things before you go into the middle of nowhere. How are you going to get out if something happens? Okay, John. So since we we've defined the difference between backcountry medicine, wilderness medicine, and front country medicine, and just say you know basic first aid versus wilderness first aid, um, what let's let's say somebody was inspired by season four, uh, and they're inspired by what we're talking about, and they're deciding you know I want to get some training. What are the the levels of training they can obtain, and what does it look like to get that training? Yeah, I think it's important for anyone who's interested to to understand first of all that that uh, the curriculum for a wilderness medicine badge is not really defined or set by any specific organization. You know, when you when you get an EMT, uh, an EMR, or an EMT, or an EMTI, or a paramedic, the curriculum for those kind of courses is is set and defined by the National Highway Transportation and Safety Agency and once you get the certification of finishing a program, then you have to apply for, you have to take your boards or your registry exam, which is a standardized exam across the country. And then you apply for a medical license through your state. And then you work under the license of a physician or a healthcare professional. And with the wilderness medicine badges, it's not quite that uh, organized. The curriculum could be defined by anybody who wants to start their own curriculum. They could, you know, start their own. They could start their own. Yeah, they could start their own course. They could put it up on their website, and you could come and take their course, and they could give you a card. And there's nobody that monitors that, and so it doesn't mean it's a bad way to do it. It just means that it's not as standardized as some of these other badges that you would get as a professional rescuer. Okay. yeah, I'm not not a... not to mention that when when you get a uh, you know wilderness card, you you're not functioning as a professional rescuer. You are 
most likely functioning under a, what's called a Good Samaritan Clause or a Good Samaritan Law, where you are, you know, you have some training and you still need to, you know, function within your scope of practice or your scope of training. But, uh, you know, you're not held to the standard of any medical board. Nobody checks your work and that you, there's no registry online where I can Google and see, hey, is Jimmy Lewis's card up to date? You know? <laughs> Wow, this is this is really helpful and it explains a lot. And I'm also thinking as as far as a tip maybe for listeners, um, that 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 important part of of the training that I remember, which was you always ask somebody if they're conscious, you ask them, would they like your help? Yes. Yep. And and this has a lot to do with why too, I would think, right? When you don't, you aren't necessarily you're there just acting as a good Samaritan. Correct. Um, okay. And this also explains as we look into the types of certifications that are available, like wilderness, basic wilderness, first aid, advanced wilderness, first aid, uh, wilderness, first responder, EMTs, um, in doing my research and also trying to see what's available today for me to recertify as a woofer, um, the amount of online education available really surprised me and that all, all the work I did was in person. And um, it was an enormous commitment of time, money, logistics. Uh, that that was as big a commitment as is the financial part was just getting the time to go take the course in person. But nowadays, um, I see that there are online options. So, um, in looking at these different types of certifications, what are your thoughts on online versus in person? Yeah, um, you know there is no question that some of the didactic work is important, you know, and whether that comes from, you know, a lecture or sitting behind a computer screen or reading a book, uh, there's some information that you just, you need to pound it into your head. And then there's the other part of it, which is hands-on. And, you, you know, you, you can't get that kind of training through a computer screen. It's really important to, you know, have your hands on the materials, you know, have a good instructor put you in a scenario that's maybe custom tailored to what you're interested in, and then have a chance to practice some of the skills that you have read about before. So the hybrid courses are are a good option for people who don't have time to travel or, uh, you know, maybe they don't learn very well in a lecture setting. They'd rather, you know, read a chapter every night for a week. Uh, I think either of those are, are good. If you're going to go take a course in Zion or some incredible place, some of these courses are, you know, structured so that you could go and be in some didactics for part of the day and then go and enjoy the scenery outside. And, uh, you know, those are, those are fine as well, but I don't think there's anything wrong with a hybrid course. And by didactics, you mean the teaching part, like the instruction part, correct? The teaching, uh, you know, the things that need to be memorized, the al algorithms, you know, pre-hospital medicine is very algorithm driven. And, uh, in other words, you know, you do this first, then you do this second. And, uh, you know, algorithms are not meant to be confining or, you know, pigeon-toe you, pigeon you into a corner, but they help, uh, they help take a situation which could really be chaos, and they do help you focus on what needs to be done first. And I do that every day uh, as an emergency medicine doctor, too. I mean, I, you know, somebody comes in the door and they're very, very sick, they might have some distracting injuries or illnesses, and it's hard to know where to start. And so those algorithms are there to help us focus. Yeah, I get that. It needs to be memorized. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking I'm, I'm living proof of, of how those didactics really do just imprint in, in someone's brain and that I remember the AVPU scale. Uh, I remember airway circulation, breathing, you know, the, those basics like still... When I see something happening that looks like it could turn into a medical event for me in the field, I start reviewing those algorithms in my head. And uh, it just, it helps, it calms me down too, because I, I'm able to look at the big picture to figure out, you know, somebody really in critical condition, or are we going to get through this okay? We just need to calm down and treat. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're considering taking a course, it's important to evaluate, you know, as an adult learner, how do you best take in that information? Some people really learn well sitting in a lecture, taking notes, you know, interacting with their colleagues on coffee breaks, and other people do not learn from a lecture. They need to do a little bit at a time. 
maybe have some interactive video or screen content, read and highlight in a book. So, you know, I would never recommend one course over the other. I think you should take something that caters to your learning style. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people will probably be able to relate to that. And um, I love that there are more options now available for people to adjust to their learning style. It's uh, it's it's very different from from when I was first getting certified. So that's great to see. And um, I'm thinking about the different types. They, yeah. Wilderness. What would you recommend? I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about the different types and think about overlanders and people, you know, heading out for overlanding, vehicle-based adventure, families, partners. Uh, what are your thoughts on the different levels of certification and what people might be yeah. interested in getting? Yeah, you bet. You know, there's you could kind of break them down into some general categories. Again, there's no overseeing body that makes the decision of what's included. But generally speaking, a wilderness first aid course is going to probably be about a two-day course uh, as opposed to a woofer or a wilderness first responder, which would maybe be about a week or 40 hours. Um, and then there are wilderness upgrades for EMTs and other medical professionals that are cover a lot of the same material that a woofer might cover. I think for the average person who's just starting out, a wilderness first aid course is really a good idea because it's concise, uh, there's less didactic and more hands-on uh, learning, you know, what to do with, uh, you know, wounds and uh, how to open an airway or maybe put on a splint uh, and then how to package somebody to maybe get them out on, on your own. The woofer courses and some of the wilderness upgrades go a little bit more into some of the pathophysiology. So maybe you would learn a little bit more about, you know, what happens at altitude? Why do you get sick? What is decompression sickness or what happens when you come up too quickly from the depths? What, uh, you know, what about hyper and hypothermia? And so somebody who is maybe a professional guide who is uh, taking people into the wilderness, you know, maybe on a mountain climbing trip who needs a little bit more advanced training, a woofer is sometimes, uh, you know, it's a merit badge that maybe a guiding company or an insurance company will require that the guides have. Uh, but for the average person who's just going to go out uh, and do some overlanding or maybe take an extended camping trip or, or uh, you know, you maybe want to add, you know, everybody, you know, you got a whole group of people that's going to go on an expedition together or, you know, drive through some other country where maybe medical care isn't as good. I think it would be important to have, you know, one or two people who had some advanced training like a woofer, but everybody functioning in the backcountry should probably have a wilderness first aid course. You know, that uh, it, it, it speaks to a philosophy of ours at X Overland, John, which is, you know, hashtag start somewhere and start, you know, start in your own backyard, so to speak. Start with small trips um, to figure out your vehicle build, to figure out your camping gear, to figure out, you know, how to utilize some new skills you're working on. And the, the wilderness, the basic wilderness first aid, you know, seems to me to be a good fit for people who are getting started in overlanding and want to keep themselves and their families, loved ones safe. And then as, as they push, push out farther and farther, let's say they start doing some bigger trips, uh, to less developed countries, that sort of thing, then maybe they can up their, their, uh, wilderness first aid skills. Yeah. You know, and it, it's important to, to remember that you, ca you can't have all of the skills. There's nobody that's going to have a skill set in every little thing. And we, you know, I grew up on a farm here in North Dakota, and we had a pretty robust farm shop, right? But we also had a truck that we would take out to the field to do some repairs. And uh, the tools on your truck need to be, you know, they had, need to have more than one use. And so, uh, you know, as I have been involved in expeditions, you know, I, you know, I'm an ER doctor and I have this training, but you know, I grew up on a farm and I love love vehicles, and I took some welding classes in college and you know, understand some basic things about mechanics. And uh, so, you know, I have several things in my tool set. So if you're going on an expedition with somebody and you're the, you know, the lead mechanic or the navigator, uh, you know, you have some kind of another role. It doesn't mean you also have to be the medical person for the trip, but you maybe add a couple little things from a wilderness first aid course. And now you become a more well-rounded member of the team. Yeah, and then when the the lead doctor says, "Could I get someone to work on airway here or monitor this patient?" Like, at least you have some skills. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
And it, it leads us to, I think it's a nice segue, John, to to talk about uh, the use case of of overlanding for wilderness medicine. And by that, you know, I'm thinking this is vehicle-based recreation and looking at things like um, everything from how far into the backcountry very quickly your vehicle can take you to a uh, mechanism for injury around vehicle recovery and things like that. And so, um, I, and I noticed in your bio too, one thing I don't, I don't think we touched on was your working is, is a medic at, at uh, the Amsoil snowmobile races, right? Like, like working with racers and motorsports. Yeah, that, that has really been a highlight of my uh, career. It's so much fun. But again, you know, you're functioning as part of a team. And uh, the interesting thing about uh, being at the snowcross races is that, uh, you know, for my most of my career leading up to that point, you know, an injury is uh, taken care of in the field and then brought to the ER. And, you know, by the time I see most injuries, you know, they happened an hour ago. But being right on the track side at a snowcross race, I mean, the accident happens uh, maybe right in front of you. And uh, so, you know, we're responsible for, you know, try to get that racer off of this snowmobile track, which, you know, is cold and windy with poor visibility. And you have, you know, 400, 500 pound sleds, you know, flying by you and jumping, and they don't want to stop the races if it's not necessary. And so, you know, I've learned a ton from the EMT and paramedics that are on those teams. You know, how do you can you get, can you stand somebody up and walk them over to the ranger or do you need to bring the stretcher out and carry them off and then bring them back into an environment where you can actually do a real exam and get out of the cold? It might be 10 or 20 below zero and blowing snow. So it's important to have a place to, you know, expose some of the injured areas and figure out in a safe environment what, what's going on. And uh, I have really gained an appreciation for, you know, how some of these injuries can be very tricky to figure out in the moments after they happen. I probably learned more about pre-hospital medicine from the, from the Snowcross team than from anybody. Yeah, I could see why. And it, it, it triggered another memory of mine about scene assessment and like, you know, the racer crashes and you want to go rescue them, but you got 30 sleds coming barreling over the hill at the same time. Right. Two, two years ago, we had one of our team members that, uh, you know, was, you know, out of, uh, altruism and self-sacrifice, you know, had seen somebody get injured on the track and went rushing out to help them and then got clipped by a sled and had to go to the hospital. And then that person was not able to help, you know, with our team for the rest of the race. And so scene safety is so important. There are very few medical problems that need to be dealt with in the next 10 seconds, you know, and it's kind of the same for, uh, you know, XO has this philosophy, you know, when a vehicle gets stuck or you need to perform a recovery or something, you know, before you just rush in, you know, it, it might be time to just, you know, have a cup of tea or just sit back for a few minutes and size up the scene and figure out what resources do you have available before you just rush in and get injured. Yeah, man, that makes sense to me. It's incredible how many of, you know, how many things have involved like backcountry training are similar. Like I think of the avalanche courses that I've taken over the years and, you know, the person wants to rush out and help their buddy who's stuck on a sled on a slope and, and then, you know, increases the risk of triggering the slope. And it's just that, 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 like you're saying, that ability to step back, look at the scene and see what really should be done next. Um, and, and with, Overlanding for, or excuse me, wilderness medicine for overlanders. Uh, I think that what we're talking about is really applicable. Like you know, when you when you think of vehicle recovery, at least where I consider that, I think of the physics involved and the potential dangers and uh, mechanisms for injury. And so you know, this kind of thinking that we're talking about would really apply in that scenario, I would imagine. And so you know, what would be your tips to people getting into vehicle-based adventure? as far as like what to be thinking about medically and, and what kind of precautions to be taking? Yeah. You know, uh, most wilderness first aid courses are going to teach some kind of a mnemonic like MARCH, which stands for, you know, massive hemorrhage, airway with C-spine precautions, respiratory, circulation, uh, and then uh, H for, uh, you know, how are you going to get out, hike or helicopter, and then dealing with the environment, hypo or hyperthermia. 
And so I think a great way to preparing for any kind of an overland trip or any outdoor adventure is, uh, you know, kind of running through those mnemonics and saying, hey, do I have something in my kit or am I prepared to deal with a life-threatening hemorrhage? It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have a tourniquet on hand, but at least know how to improvise one and, uh, you know, how to pack a wound so there's not a tremendous amount of bleeding. Same with airway. I mean, you don't have to carry advanced airway tools with you like I would have in the emergency department or on an expedition where I've been, you know, you know, I've been, you know, signed a contract to take care of people in the field, but knowing how to roll somebody over and open the airway, uh, you know, maybe how to place a nasal airway if needed. Uh, and running through your kit like that with a mnemonic helps to make sure you have those most important things available. And I have a kit that I carry when I when I fly. It's just a little chest pouch. You can't have everything with you, but there's a saying in aviation that says, you know, if it's on your person, it's survival gear. If it's in the back of the plane, it's camping gear. You know, you might not be able to have access to that before you need it. And so, you know, having those things to deal with the March mnemonic on your person or, you know, strapped to the back of a headrest where they're handy and can you can get to them easily uh, is a great way to plan your kit. And then all of that other stuff that you could take out later, you could put in a kit in the back of the truck or behind the seat or, you know, you have more time to get to those things. Let, let's talk a little more about that, going into a little more depth. Like we, in our preliminary combo, um, we started get it, getting into this. And I thought it was so useful. And so what you're talking about as far as preparing for whatever it is you're going to do, whether it's a weekend trip or it's a bigger expedition or, you know, multi-week trip to Alaska or something like that, by thinking about things like, you know, environment and activity and in order to prep your kit and, and just this fundamental difference that you've described between, you know, having like, let's say with vehicle mechanics, the analogy, you, you have a full shop at home, but in the field, obviously you can't take the whole shop. Um, so, and I, and I do know people, John, who, who, uh, and I'm guilty of this, um, grab a, just grab a adventure med kit off the shelf at REI, throw it in the truck and it's better nothing, but maybe we can, uh, just explore how do you get past that to being truly prepared? Yep. Yeah. Um, I've looked at a lot of those kits. We did a pretty comprehensive review for Overland Journal a few years ago. And, uh, yeah, you know, most of them are, are good. They've got some stuff in there, but, you know, most of them also have some kind of a shortcoming. And so, you know, when, if somebody comes and takes one of my wilderness medicine classes, uh, you know, I encourage them to bring their own gear along. And this is a good time to pull it all out. Let's lay it on the tailgate, go through it and use it to work a few scenarios. And, you know, some of the stuff in there can expire. Uh, you know, the adhesives don't work anymore or it goes through a couple of freeze-thaw cycles and it should be replaced. And I, you know, sometimes we have this mentality that, you know, like if I, if I buy a wrench, that wrench should last for 50 years. You know, I've still got some of my grandpa's tools that I carry with me and that's great. I still haven't got my money's worth out of them yet, but <laughs> a first aid kit, golly, and even really, uh, you know, uh, stuff for winching ropes, uh, synthetic lines and shackles and things like that, they need to be taken out every once in a while and, and checked. So some kind of a shakedown trip ahead of time is good for, you know, mechanical reasons and for medical reasons. Just pull the gear out, have a friend or two look through it with you and make sure that stuff is still, op you know, still operable. Speaking of that friend or two, like if you're going out with a group of vehicles, is there any advantage to spreading out some medical gear that way so like in order to be able to carry more like you might do with tools say yeah for sure uh you know when we when we went to greenland you know our life depended on these three trucks and uh you know we wanted to make sure that every kit every truck had the things to deal with you know massive hemorrhage airway respiratory circulation and then some other you know i call it a snivel kit you know, there's no need to dig into the expedition medical kit every time somebody has a, a runny nose or needs a Band-Aid, you know. So, so uh, you know, a kit to deal with trauma that you would need instantly, you know, and that can usually be, you know, the size of an IFAC or maybe a little bit bigger. Have, keep it somewhere handy in a vehicle and then in the glove box can go the stuff like, uh, you know, some Tylenol and knuckle bandages and things like that. And then, 
an expedition kit that's maybe a little bit more thorough, like one of these mountain medical kits or adventure medical kits, you know, that has stuff in there to irrigate out wounds and deal with blisters and things like that. You could bury those a little bit deeper. Yeah, man, that, that makes so much sense to me. And, you know, just reiterating for clarification, uh, you're talking about having your, your, your big kit somewhere that's a little less, less accessible, but that has all the the heavy equipment, so to speak, related to to serious situations, and then having a a smaller, more easily accessible kit with band aids, maybe a pair of tweezers for splinters, a um, few of those little things. Yeah, much and then, more accessible, like in the glove box. Exactly, and then like you mentioned, I mean, you know, splitting up some of these supplies, <clears throat> like, uh, you know, I, I think that every kit in a every truck in a convoy should have one of those trauma kits because, you know, the last thing you need is a, a vehicle, you know, goes over the edge or becomes involved in a motor vehicle collision or there's a fire and you exit the vehicle and now, now where's all your gear? It's in the vehicle that's disabled or out of commission. And so spreading those life-saving supplies, you know, not, not necessarily spreading them up, but making sure that each vehicle is appropriately equipped is important. Yeah, that makes so some you building in some redundancy there to the most yeah. important medical items. Yeah, yeah. that makes t- that makes a ton of sense. I've I've heard of uh, you know when people are getting really serious about you know bigger expeditions and just going into more remote areas, less developed countries, having uh, go bags like quick bags with with the most important things they need to survive, both financially and physically, so to speak. Um, where, where if the vehicle is gets stuck in a river or starts to burn or whatever, they can just grab it and go. Yeah, and I, I like keeping that kit somewhere where where you've got quick access to it because a lot of times you know we'll we'll be having an adventure in a vehicle and then we're going to stop and we're going to go do something. We're going to explore a you know a mine shaft or hike up this trail a mile or something. So you know having a bag that you can just you know rip off the back of your uh, headset in your truck. And throw it in a throw it in your backpack or your day pack to take with you is a great idea. You know, when we were in Alaska, uh, we flew into Rainy Pass Lodge in a Beaver, and you know we had a pretty pretty thorough uh, medical kit in the trucks. But now all of a sudden we got, you know, seven of us guys are going to jump on this little plane and you know fly a hundred or hundred and fifty miles across the Alaskan frontier where there was nothing. That's a perfect example of where. You know, I grabbed two of the, because we, we made it in two trips. So each, each group of us took one of these little kits from like the back of the headrest to make sure that if something happened, there was an emergency landing or we needed something out there at Rainy Pass Lodge that we would have what we needed with us. And when we got back to the truck, it went right back behind the headset. Yeah, headrest. That's a, yeah, that's a, a excellent example of exactly what we're talking about. Just how quickly speaks too to how like with backcountry stuff and via anything kind of motorsports based or vehicle based how quickly you can go from a front country level of care to being remote and being in a backcountry situation like you're not even having to hike from the trailhead say you know with a overlanding vehicle you could find yourself hundreds of miles um, into some remote setting you know literally in in a few hours yeah, for sure. And so, you know, that's great because it's allowed, you know, it's allowed people who otherwise wouldn't be able to experience the wilderness to get out there and see it. I mean, you're not going to find many folks with cardiovascular disease or brittle diabetes at the surface of Mount Everest. I suppose it's possible, but but less likely. But it's so easy t- for us nowadays to gain easy access to the backcountry that, and you know, you may be 30 miles from town, but if you don't have cell phone access, uh, you may not even be able to access these rescue services by calling 911 or whatever. So, um, you know, being, being prepared is pretty important. Let's talk a little bit since you just brought up cell phones. Um, you know, we, we've done some podcasts with, uh, Clay and a guy named Matt Hopkins, uh, he's a buddy of Clay's and our logistics guy, but he's also high alpine search and rescue here in the Gallatin Valley. And so we did uh, we did a couple episodes on search and rescue and what that looks like from their point of view. And uh, you got me thinking about that in the way of wilderness medicine and technology. 
things like satellite beacons, messengers, phones, um, possibly communicating with SAR teams. What are some basics that you might offer people when it comes to technology and wilderness medicine? Yeah. Um, I, th I think that it's okay to embrace it. You know, there, there is a little bit of this, uh, you know, machismo or bravado or, you know, like I, I want to go into the wilderness. And I don't need anybody to have my back because I can do it myself. But golly, these things nowadays are so small and so, uh, you know, capable as far as battery life and what they can do and how you can communicate that I don't think there's really a very good excuse to venture a long way off the beaten path and not take some kind of a satellite messaging device with you. It then may or may not link to your cell phone, but uh, these things have incredible battery life, much longer than a cell phone, and uh, you know they add so they add such a safety net that I really think they're important. Yeah, that's uh, something that you know with our search and rescue guys, they were saying the same thing. Like it's it's just so from their point of view, if they have a ping in a in a you know position where they know where you're at. The difference is just extraordinary in, in the rescue situation. And, it, and it's also important to carry one because you're helping to protect rescuers. You know, there are groups of people around the country, around the world in these search and rescue organizations. And, you know, if somebody goes hiking or they're on a hunting trip and they don't show up, eventually somebody in this country is going to come looking for you. And when they do that, they are putting their own health and well-being at risk. And so I don't think it's fair that they, these groups may be out in the middle of nowhere exposing themselves to, uh, you know, steep cliffs and terrible weather, uh, you know, and then only to be looking in the wrong place because you decided to take a different path than what you told your buddy when you left the house. And so, you know, it's just, there, there is really not a good excuse to venture off the beaten path and not take one of these devices with you. For your own safety and for everybody else. So, John, we—that's a good point and a helpful point. Um, and I, I would, I would like in the future, like uh, I'm really excited about having you on as what we call a serial guest, where you know we can bring you back to address more specific topics within wilderness medicine. Now that we've done an overview today, but in completing that overview. Um, you're kind of piggybacking off of what we were just talking about. But what about some tips on mindset for staying healthy in the first place, staying safe in the first place, maybe like when you go out and you know, we've been talking about what to bring in case the accident happens. Are there any mindset tips you could offer people that, that might help them you know, prevent the accident to begin with? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've had a, a career now or a half a career probably of, you know, taking care of people in the emergency room and not one single person has ever scheduled an appointment with me, <laughs> but the business is always there. And so, you know, I, I like having, you know, I like encouraging people to have that mindset of what can we do to prevent illness or injury in the first place. And, you know, one of the common themes with people who come to the ER with an injury or an illness is, you know, they're in a hurry, you know, they've done this task a hundred times, but today they were in a hurry and they skipped something. And so, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast is what they always said uh, in the military. And so, you know, slowing down and being deliberate with your actions, especially when you're dealing with vehicles or uh, recovery situations is pretty important. And then, you know, as far as staying healthy, uh, you know, uh, I would encourage anybody to get in a strength training program. Uh, you know, I, I don't think going out and training to do a marathon uh, t tomorrow is, is maybe not for, you know, maybe not for me, but ha having some kind of an approach to a physical fitness plan, because if you don't have a plan, you can't follow it. And so I guess, you know, if running is your thing, then that's great. If running's not your thing, some kind of a strength training program or a weight-based thing where you're doing some push-ups or sit-ups, some kind of calisthenics every day. And if you can make it fun, like involve your uh, loved ones, your kids or your spouse, it becomes even that much better when you can see each other's progress. Love that. 
Yeah, that's a an excellent preventative for all kinds of possible musculoskeletal injuries that could occur. You're doing even overlanding activities like winching and digging out a vehicle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, great. So, John, um, love this podcast. I, it's been so helpful, and we we took a, a long look at the different options people have for training. And so, uh, to that, I would like you to offer. Um, to listeners, what what you have to offer as far as you know, resources, websites, classes you teach, things of that nature. Yeah, uh, thanks. You know, my my time is uh, is so tied up. At, you know, the free time is pretty limit limited. You know, we teach some wilderness medical uh, courses at the medical school where I work, and so my focus right now is really on you know, giving these medical students an introduction to wilderness medicine so that no matter what field they go into, they realize that at any given time in their lives, they may be called upon to render some life-threatening aid. So every once in a while throughout the year, I'll squeeze in some kind of a course for the community here, uh, you know, around my home. But there are lots of places available to go and get this training. You know, the National Outdoor Leadership School is really well-known. Uh, Adventure Med runs courses on uh, wilderness uh, wilderness first aid and wilderness upgrades for people like physicians or nurse practitioners or paramedics. Um, and, uh, you know, with a small Google search, you can get lots of different options in your area and take the one that fits your lifestyle. You don't have to travel all the way across the country to take one. You can do something locally. Excellent. And your website again is is what? Uh, you can find me at johnsolbergmd.com. I have some wilderness links on there and some interesting things, uh, gear reviews and whatnot. Uh, and then every once in a while, I'll be on Twitter or Instagram at DACDOC. That's D-A-K-D-O-C at, uh, uh, you know, at either of those platforms or on Facebook. Yeah. On Facebook at DACDOC as well? Excellent. I need to get get following you there. I've got the others. I need to get get to you on Facebook. All right. Great. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And we definitely look forward to having you back on to get further into the weeds on wilderness medicine specifics for overlanders. Um, wishing you a good rest of your weekend. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to this uh, motorcycle and fly fishing trip that you promised. Oh, do, do you ride bikes? I can't remember. Oh yeah. Love motorcycles. Oh man. Well, come out here and let's do, I, I call them ride fish and camps. Perfect. So yeah, get out here this summer and let's do it. All right. Sounds great. All right. Thanks everyone for joining. And remember if uh, you're interested in watching these podcasts, you can subscribe to Overlander Network. We have everything, uh, audio and video there. And until next time, cheers. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, stay adventurous. Stay adventurous.